0: Download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits.
1: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. I'm thrilled to present an interview with one of the great character actors of our time, Barry Corbin. He's approaching his 40th year as a film and TV actor, and this past April of 2018, he was inducted into the Hall of Great Western Performers at the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum in Oklahoma City. The MC for that ceremony was his old friend, Sam Elliott. Barry's credits are way, way too long to list, but I sat down with him to talk about a few classics. First, he embodied the man in the myth of Charlie Goodnight, the famous Texas cattleman, in the one-man play by Andy Wilkinson called Charlie Goodnight's Last Night. Goodnight and his partner Oliver Loving were the core inspirations for the characters of Woodrow F. Call and Augustus McRae in Larry McMurtry's all-time great novel, Lonesome Dove. And of course, Barry Corbin played the role of Roscoe Brown in the Epic TV miniseries. He'll tell some stories of the making of the film, as well as his memories of filming another movie in the same area, but one that could not have been more opposite, though it also starred Tommy Lee Jones. That one was No Country for Old Men. You can currently see Barry as a guest on the show The Ranch on Netflix, and in a whole host of upcoming movies. I met him at his home in Fort Worth, which is basically a shrine to the Old West. And here's an amazing nugget. On one of his bookshelves is a hardcover copy of Lonesome Dove, signed by every single living Texas ranger. It's an incredible sight. So, without further ado, here's Barry Corbin.
2: I was thinking, why are westerns not popular among young people? When I was a kid, which is, I'm 77 years old. When I was a kid, the old west was like yesterday. It was like uh, what uh, the Vietnam War would be to a kid now. You know, just recent. There were still cowboys coming to town horseback when I was a kid in in La Mesa. It's like now if if you uh, watch a western to the kids today, it's like watching a a, a Revolutionary War movie to a kid when I was a kid, you know, you didn't want to watch a movie with guys with powdered wigs and stuff, you know, that wasn't, you you didn't want to see that because it was ancient. Well that's what the western is now to these kids.
1: Yeah, they, they don't have any way to identify with it.
2: There's no way. There's no way they can identify with it. Most of them have never seen a horse, and if you if you get on if if they went to get on a the horse, they wouldn't know how. Now it's all spaceships. They got Star Star Wars. That's Western, but it's spaceships instead of horses and livestock.
1: Well, I think uh, on that on that topic, that is kind of one of the questions I I wanted to ask: is why do you think it's it's important to keep the Old West alive, both the iconic moments that have been kind of romanticized and the you know the darker darker
2: moments, yeah. Uh, Why is it important? It's important to us as Americans, just as uh, Greek mythology is to the Greeks, uh, Norse mythology is to the to the Danish uh, Roman mythology is to the Italians it's it's that important to keep it alive if we don't keep it alive we lose our national identity we lose our our self identification as Americans it's our, it's our mythology it's our mythology it's our and it's not real any more than uh, Mount Olympus, with the gods sitting up there, you know, running everything, is. Uh, it's it's idealized. Our we we made it a myth. At uh, in in fact in point of fact, a cowboy a guy working on on a ranch somewhere. He never got. He'd get to town maybe twice a year. And he'd go wild, crazy. Uh, we think of it, now you, you see a western and you see these people riding horses on the street, and milling around on the boardwalk, and saloons full. Well, that's not, that never happened. I mean, there wasn't anybody in town. They were all out working, you know. People who were in town, shopkeepers and people who were in their places of business. There wasn't people wandering around the street, you know, carrying baskets and riding their horses up and down the street. I tried to convince them when you're doing a movie, don't say, don't get all the, don't, we don't need all these people out here. They didn't have that many people in the whole state, you know. <laughs> Once a month, you know, they'd come in and do some, uh, you know, do the shopping and sit around and gossip a little bit, and then they'd go back home. Right. They, didn't, they didn't hang around in town. It, it is basically who we are as, as, a, uh, as a nation. And if we forget that, then we might just, well, just, just quit. Turn into Russia or something. Turn into China. It doesn't make any difference. If we, if we lose our history, we've lost everything. This character Ellis. Where does he come in? Right. I keep reading, reading, all this blood, gore, and shooting people, and you know, putting bolts in their heads and stuff. I said, I don't know if I want to do this thing. I kept reading and reading and reading. Finally, I got to that scene, and I read it. Whoa! I went back, read it again called my manager and I said, well, hell yes, I'll do it. That scene is the movie. That's the whole movie. And uh, so I made the deal with them. But I had this, I'd already agreed to do this other thing. So they asked me to come up and rehearse in Santa Fe before they started shooting. So I went up to Santa Fe. and you know, got got together with uh, Josh Brolin. I'd known him from before, and Javier came in the bar. We were all sitting around the bar talking. If I'd known, if I'd seen that movie first, I would have got up and left when Javier came in. He was a very nice, friendly guy, you know. We were all sitting around talking. Next morning we'd go into the ballroom, me and Tommy Lee and uh, Joel and Ethan were in there just just us, so we ran through the scene. They said, "Okay, well, that's that's all we need." So we didn't even they didn't even do anything. They just had us run through the scene. So we went to lunch. Tommy Lee and his entourage. He had some guys with him, you know, drivers and people, you know. So we all went to lunch. And. Uh, then I flew out the next day to go to Kansas to do this other movie. I worked on that for about two weeks, and then I, I was horseback the whole time. I flew into Marfa, got in a wheelchair, That's and it. the wheelchair made me soer than the horse did. It was an uncomfortable old wheelchair, you know. We were out in the country in this old shack, you know. And they had rattlesnakes up under the floor. You'd hear them. They'd, if you stomped on the floor, they'd rattle down there. And they had those cats wandering around. I said, you know, let's not let them cats get out because if you do, you're never going to see them again. Because there's coyotes around here and there's snakes up under the, under the house. So those cats are gone if one of them gets out. Well, if you watch the movie, when Tommy Lee walks in the door, a cat skins out runs out. Well, they never saw that cat again. So they uh, shot that. I came home, you know, didn't think anything more about it. And then the movie came out and we went to see it. And I thought it was pretty good. You know, I thought it was a good, good deal. And, and that scene was, worked real well, I thought. And they gets the best picture of the year.
1: Were a couple things about Charlie Goodnight himself that maybe the lay person wouldn't know that you may have learned getting deep into it the way you were.
2: He was a very complex man. I mean, he, he, was, he had no education, no formal education. He was self-educated. He was a self-taught botanist. He uh, he's the, one of the first ones to experiment with uh, interbreeding. The bison with cattle. He uh, developed a, a strain he called uh, cattle low, and they called it beefalo now. It, uh, it, it's, a, it's a hybrid. Uh, he also tried to, inter- <laughs> he experimented with breeding uh, pigs with goats. That didn't work out, but he he did, He tried all kinds. Of, he was always experimenting with things. He was a plainsman. And obviously, he worked uh, out in the in nature, and his whole uh, his whole life was based around nature. He was a friend of the Comanches, Wanda right. Parker. They were. He was one of his, one of the cattlemen who who uh, helped him build his house. Okay. Star House. Yeah, the Star House. Yeah. Still, uh, they still it's still standing in Cash, Oklahoma. It's on private property. You have to get permission to go in, but it's still there. He was a scout for the for the uh, uh, for the Rangers. Uh, Sol Ross was a their ranger leader, when they found Cynthia Ann at the uh, battle, they, they call it the Battle of the Pease River, but it was no battle, It was the, all the men were gone out hunting, and they just, there was women and old people, you know, in there. And uh, it was basically a slaughter. They killed killed everybody, and they saw this one woman with the baby. And they noticed she had blue eyes. It was Cynthia Ann Parker. She'd been kidnapped years before. And uh, Goodnight wanted to just let her go with her people, with the with the Indians, because he said she she'll never be able to adjust to, to our way to- of life. And she never she never did adjust. Her baby died within a year, and. Uh, within a year after that she was dead she she kept trying to escape trying trying to go back she wanted to go back but he was uh, he he always had an affinity for natural people uh, civilization to him was was not a a good thing and he fenced it. He was one of the first people to fence. His he, he uh, brought in barbed wire to the to the Panhandle because he knew that it was that's was the coming thing. He uh, quit carrying the gun as soon as they had law there. He never carried one after that. He always had one with him, but he never carried one. When he was an old man, he was going to the trail dri- old trail driver's reunion in in uh, San Antonio. He caught the train in Goodnight, Texas, and rode down to to Fort Worth. Met up with an old friend of his. His old friend came, and they took the train down to uh, San Antonio. He was going to be down there a week. He had a little carpet bag with him. Good night, then. That? That's all—only luggage he had with him. There was a, a clean shirt, a couple of changes of underwear, box of cigars, bottle of whiskey, and a Colt 45. That's all he took. I try to travel that way myself. Takes place in one night. Goodnight's last night on earth. It's Called Charlie. Goodnight's last night, and uh, the audience either is a figment of his imagination and it's people that he that he knew, or they're people coming in to pay their last respects. You never know for sure because he never knows for sure. So i It starts out. Uh, well, at the very first, he says, he comes out on, you know, the old man comes in the, into his bedroom, basically, he comes in and he looks around, some goddamn town denizen left the gate swinging. leave a goddamn gate like you find it, is that so difficult? I'm talking to the audience. I'm picking people out, talking to them. That's the kind of guy he was. He, he, one one of the things that he uh, that he that one of the quotes in the, a lot of it's direct quotes from what he said. J. Everett Haley brought uh, J. Frank Doby to visit uh, the Colonel. They called him Colonel, and he was uh, he was in his 90s, and they. Couldn't find him. They went up to his house. Nobody was there. And they went around the back, and he was out there. He had his coat off. And he had post hole diggers. And he was digging fence posts, uh, post holes, you know. And uh, out there working. And that and. Uh, Haley says, uh, "Excuse me, Colonel. We are we uh, are we bothering you?" He said, "Well, hell yes, you're bothering me. But don't study about it. If you hadn't come along, to bother me, some other son of a bitch would have. Come on in, set yourself down. So he brought, took him in, gave him a drink of whiskey, and, and then he started telling them all, you know, about his life, you know." but he uh, that that's the kind of guy he was. he'd yeah. cuss all the time he was rough talking, but he was very sensitive it covered up the sensitivity with with a bunch of bluster and cussing so what uh, what the play the the play goes from being very uh rough and and uh hard talking. And as it goes along, it gets more and more poetic. And uh, you know, there's one point where he's where he's talking about uh, son of a bitch, Stew. He says, it's "Not son of a gun, Stew. If you're going to use a name, use the proper name. It's son of a bitch." And then then he starts. It will be Christmas. Soon back home. Back home where the nights are cold and clear. And you can see tomorrow from today. I would go home again. I would go home again. Then he then he then he goes from that to says uh Christmas, last Christmas, I sought to have a son of a bitch stew made for our Christmas repast. But somebody unbeknownst to me meddled in the, in the provisions, and what we had was a damn poor excuse for a son of a bitch. Mercury did. He made uh, Gus and Cole contemporaries. In fact, uh, Oliver Loving was like a father figure to to Charles Goodnight. Goodnight was thirty, and uh, and Loving was 50 in his fifties. And when Loving got was killed, when he he got uh, when the Comanches got him. Good night. It said that he was the nearest thing to a father to him that he'd ever known because his father died when he was very young. And his stepfather was, you know, kind of cruel to him, you know. So his uh, father figure was was Oliver Loving, and it was like losing a father when he he heard uh, that he'd been wounded. He uh, immediately got on a mule and rode a hundred miles in one night to Fort Sumter. And Goodnight did take Oliver Loving from after he died from New Mexico to to Weatherford because he gave his word that he would. He said when Loving was dying, he said, "I don't want to be buried in a foreign country. Take me to." take me back to, to my lodge in Weatherford. So he did. And I don't know if you know the whole history of, of this story. Well, originally, uh, McMurtry was commissioned by Warner Brothers to write a screenplay because they wanted to have a movie with John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, and Henry Fonda. So he wrote this screenplay, and it was basically Lonesome Dub. And it was called Streets of Laredo. And Wayne wanted to play Gus. Uh, Stewart didn't care, he just, you know, he, he whatever they wanted him to play, he'd do. And uh, Henry Fonda was going to be Jake Spoon. Then Wayne got sick. Fonda was having heart problems. So it all fell apart, and they never did it, which is a good thing. I mean, it would have been a good movie, but it would have been just a movie. McMurtry went, when he realized they weren't going to do it, went and brought the rights back. He bought it from Warner Brothers and wrote that book. I read the book, and I went to my agent, and I said, look, they're going to make a miniseries out of this book. I need to be in this mini series when they do it. Well, it was about a year and a half or two years later when they did it and uh, my agent forgot that I'd said anything about it. Well, fortunately, they came into uh, Hollywood and were seeing people, but only seeing people that they that they wanted to see. I mean, they they didn't have an open call or anything, you know, people nobody was submitted for it. They came into town, and they called in the people they wanted to see, and I was one of them. They called in, and I said, I don't care what part it is. I don't care what part I play. I just want to be a part of it. So they hired me to do Roscoe. That was really a great experience for me, for a lot of the other people who had to go through all the all the hell that they went through, it wasn't such a great experience, but for me it was wonderful. My scenes were the first to be shot, the stuff in in uh, in Fort Smith and so I worked I came in work for I think two weeks, maybe two and a half weeks. Then I went away for three months I guess. Did uh, two other movies in the in the meantime then came back and finished the movie in New Mexico. So it was, uh, you know, I only worked uh, at the most three and a half weeks on the movie, you know. Well after I, uh, when I was there, everybody, when I first started, everybody was optimistic and looking forward to it. Duval had his hat he wore his hat all the time, you know. He wasn't even hadn't been on camera yet. But he he'd walk around town in Austin with that hat on. And uh, everybody was optimistic, and feeling great. I shot my stuff and left. Came back, and Tim, we were in New Mexico and in uh, Santa Fe, and. uh Tim Scott was there. everybody was mad, everybody's mad at each other. I don't couldn't figure it out so I Tim and I went to get a hamburger we' been over sitting there at a hamburger joint sitting outside and I said, Tim, what happened? I said this everybody was so happy and so looking forward to doing this thing and now everybody's at each other's throats what what went on?" <laughs> cattle drive so my my idea was I had the best part in the movie because I I never saw a cow I didn't have to do anything with the cattle drive so it was I I had a, a, a good memorable part and I didn't have to fool with the cattle you can't separate your you're raising from who you are. Larry McMurtry grew up out in Archer City. He was his family were they were all ranchers. He knew he didn't want to do that. He knew he wanted to write, basically. If you saw I don't you know saw HUD, horseman pass by. The part that Brandon DeWilda played in HUD was Larry McMurtry. He was a young kid growing up on a ranch, but had an idea of the world, and he wanted to tell the story. So McMurtry basically is a storyteller, and which is basically what what all writers, and by extension all actors, we're, were storytellers. We are the people that back in the days of the caveman or back in the days of the, of the, uh, when the Indians were living out, we're the guys that go by the campfire and tell stories. We're the ones that keep history alive. Reach up there and get that, book. I want to show you this. This is this is one of a kind. You're not never going to see this oh, again. Lord. It's signed by every living Texas Ranger.
1: You're kidding.
2: Texas Rangers gave it to me. They hired me as, as a speaker. They have a yearly... Banquet that they, you know, for all the Texas Rangers, retired and active, you know. When they invited me to speak, they gave me that.
1: Thanks for listening. Now, as always, if you like the show, please give it a rating and a review on iTunes. Those things help make the show more visible to new listeners as they're browsing through all the different podcasts out there. You can find us on the web at oldwestpodcast.com and on our Facebook page, Legends of the Old West Podcast. The handles for Twitter and Instagram are at oldwestpodcast.